It's good to see you all this morning. Um, as we already talked about, the Nutt family is away on vacation, and so the elders have prepared a sermon series called Doctrine for Life. And we're focusing in on key doctrines for living out the Christian life. And so last week, as Brahm already mentioned, Howard preached on the confession of sin, and naturally, I have the great pleasure of preaching on the forgiveness of sin. So before we look at God's word this morning, let me open us up with a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, that you speak to us through it, that it is powerful, that it is not just text, Lord, but it is the spirit at work through that text. And so, Lord, we pray your hand upon the preaching and the teaching of your word this morning. Would you move our hearts? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And so this morning, our text comes to us from the book of Psalm. We'll be in chapter 103. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to flip to it, mark it off for now, and we'll read through the whole chapter in due time. Before we do that, though, in seeking out to flesh out the forgiveness of sins, or the doctrine of that, rather, I want to pose a simple question. And that question is this. Do you know God's forgiveness? And you might be thinking to yourself, of course, I'm a Christian. Knowing God's forgiveness through Christ is integral to my identity as a Christian, and you're not wrong for thinking that. If you're a Christian, you must know the doctrine of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. It is an inescapable foundational truth of the Christian faith. So why bother asking the question? Well, Ty Friesen and I have been leading a small group for some time now, and that small group has been going through Brad's sermon series in the book of 2 Timothy And I can't remember which sermon it is now, it's been a while, but one of the discussions that was brought up in that small group was the discussion or the discernment between a head knowledge of something and a heart knowledge of something. And I mention this because I think within that discussion in that small group lay the crooks of this sermon series as a whole and our sermon this morning. Knowledge in one's heart is knowledge of the head applied in life. I'll say that again. Knowledge in one's heart is knowledge of the head applied in life. So I want to flesh that out a tiny bit. And I don't know about you, but my head is full of useless head knowledge. And if you were to ask Jessie, she'd be able to shed some light on what that is. I was, uh, I was thinking about it this week while I was writing this. The head knowledge that I have is probably akin to the stuff that Howard has in his shed that he talked about last week. But who I am as a person, a fellow Christian, a husband, a father, is not a reflection distinctly of my head knowledge. It's a reflection of the things that I treasure in my heart. And that cuts both ways, the good things I treasure in my heart and the bad. And so back to my question about the forgiveness of sins, I think we succeed in knowing the forgiveness of God at, say, a head level most of the time, but where we struggle is having a deeper 
heart knowledge of that forgiveness. And so the overarching statement I want to put forward this morning that we're going to use Psalm 103 to flesh out is this. To know God's forgiveness is to live in God's forgiveness. And so with that, open your Bibles to Psalm 103. And I'll be reading the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we have two things before us this morning. We have this statement that I mentioned already, to know God's forgiveness is to live in God's forgiveness. And secondly, we have our text this morning as a means to explore that statement, to expand upon it. And so in order to do that, in order to take our knowledge of the head that we have of God's forgiveness in our lives and apply it to our heart, we need to do some work with this text. And so starting things off, I want to focus on the structure of the text this morning. And if we're keen, there should be a couple of things that stick out to us right away about this text. The psalm starts and ends in a very similar fashion. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 2 through 22 can sort of serve as bookends to this text. And there's something very interesting about these bookends. They're similar, but they're not identical. And so if we pay attention to the language that David is using here at the beginning of the psalm, David is focusing inward. He's calling himself to praise. And by the time we reach the end, David is exclaiming and calling all matter of creatures and people, heaven and earth, to praise the Lord. 
So without even reading everything else that's in between this psalm, we're just looking at our bookends, we can take away that the content of this psalm is meant to stir us up in praise and worship, so much so that it starts as an inward meditation and it becomes directed to everyone. And that's really striking. David is coming into this psalm with the intention of blessing the Lord himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And by the time he's done meditating here, he's become a metaphorical town crier. He's running up and down the streets, exclaiming and ushering people to worship the Lord. So whatever David is meditating on is so potent, so rich, that he is overflowing with praise. And so the way this psalm begins and ends underscores the importance of its content. So the natural question that comes next is, what is the content of this psalm? What's so grand that could cause King David to cry out in praise like this? So we're going to take a look at the content here, and and I believe that the content can be divided into three distinct sections, and I want to briefly work through each of them so that we understand what is propelling David forward in praise. So section one of this psalm you could read as verses two through five. And we start off here, David calling on himself to bless the Lord. And in this first chunk of text, we see the language is self-referential by design. He's purposing to bless the Lord, and so he's thinking of what? He's thinking of all the ways that the Lord has blessed him. He seeks to remember the benefits of the Lord as a means to bless the Lord. Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So like we've talked about a couple times already, this first section is an inward meditation. David's looking at himself And he's looking at God's intimate dealings in his life. And so that's our first section. And we start to progress through the scripture and we're moving into the second section now. And we notice that David's attention is now being shifted. Section two of the psalm you could see is verses six through 14. And here we see David looking at the work of the Lord on a historic scale. He shifted his attention from himself, and now he's looking at everyone. He's reaching back to Moses and the Lord's dealings with Israel during the Exodus. And when you think about it, this too makes a lot of sense. David starts off by reminding himself of all the things the Lord has done for him in the present moment. And to further encourage himself that the Lord will continue to do so, he begins to reflect on the dealings that God has had with Israel on a historic scale. In other words, David's saying, how can I be sure that the benefits I experience from the Lord will continue? I can be sure because I can see God's track record. I remember God's grace towards our people. I know I'm secure in him. Look at everything he has done. And in all of this, these two sections are distinctly about what? They're about the forgiveness of God. The language here is absolutely soaked in the theme of forgiveness. Everything David is framing as a benefit of the Lord can be categorized under the greater umbrella of forgiveness. 
pulling you out of the pit, healing your diseases, crowning you with steadfast love and mercy, working righteousness and justice for the oppressed. The Lord doesn't do these things because Israel, David, you or I, have done anything to warrant them. We're sinful. And in light of our sinful nature, any benefit that we receive this morning or any other time from the Lord is, and in and of itself, part of his overarching forgiveness towards us. His very nature is forgiving, merciful, and loving. And so we have our first two sections here, the content of the psalm, and with that we move on to our third section in the text. And that can be seen as verses 15 through 19. And in this section, once again, David is switching the focus. So he starts off inwardly meditating. He looks to God's dealings with Israel on a historic scale, and once again, he's turning in back to himself, to the personal sphere. But this time, it's different. He's not looking at the benefits of the Lord or anything to do with the Lord. He's just looking at himself, specifically his frailty and the frailty of mankind as a whole. And after he's done doing this, David takes his psalm and he begins to reflect on the infinite beauty, power, dominion, and love of God. And David's very deliberate here with this final chunk of our text this morning and where he placed it. Think about the progression here for a second and step into David's shoes writing this psalm. You're weary in your circumstances and you're in need of encouragement and so you purpose to worship the Lord. You do so by putting some pen to paper and you begin reflecting on what the Lord has done for you and this is encouraging but how do you know he'll continue to do the things that he has already done for you in your life? And so you begin to reflect on all the amazing and gracious things that God has done for your people long before you even existed. You remember the covenants that God made with your people, the patience he had with the disobedience of your ancestors, and suddenly you're reassured and confident that the Lord will never abandon you. Time and time again, your people have abused the grace of God, and time and time again, God has poured mercy upon Israel. And as you reflect on this, an unfathomable truth surfaces in your mind that kind of undergirds everything you've already reflect on, reflected on. You are dust. And God is the farthest possible thing from dust. The difference between you and God is staggering and infinite. And in light of that, the forgiveness that you dwell on becomes even more pronounced. How could a God like that have an inkling of grace towards a person like me? A person of dust. And so you've meditated on this, and by the time you're done, where are you at? You're kneeling before the throne of God, and you're in awe. A speck of dust before an ocean of mercy, and your only possible response is praise. But it's not just inward praise anymore. You're no longer just trying to encourage yourself. The truth that you have come to in this time of meditation is too big and it's too beautiful to keep hidden away to yourself, and so you call on all those who hear, bless the Lord. 
And so we can feel David's joy here as we progress through our text. And this morning, how much more joy should we feel in light of the forgiveness that we receive through Christ? God in his very nature is forgiving, but no act of forgiveness has ever been greater than the giving up of his only son for us. Not because we were righteous, not purely out of gracious or out of purely gracious love for us. This isn't just any kind of forgiveness. It's all-encompassing, history-spanning, limitless, and full forgiveness. And I don't know about you this morning, but this is where reality hits me like a ton of bricks. If that's the forgiveness that I've been given this morning, why do I find that I don't act like David at the end of this psalm? Why am I not the town crier standing up on a soapbox, waving a bell, exclaiming to everyone to bless the Lord? And so circling back to what we were talking about at the very start here, I think the problem is we know of God's forgiveness, but we don't know it with our hearts as much as we ought. And so circling back to our statement this morning, to know God's forgiveness is to live in God's forgiveness. And so with our remaining time this morning, it's natural to ask, how do we do that? How do we live in God's forgiveness? How do I take the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins from my head and write it on my heart and live in light of it? And I have three statements that we'll spend the rest of our time this morning that will unpack that and hopefully shed some light on how that's done. And so my three statements this morning are this. If we want to live in God's forgiveness, we need to, one, remember his forgiveness. Two, we need to act in response to his forgiveness. And three, we must rejoice in his forgiveness. So statement number one, how do we live in God's forgiveness? We need to remember it. And this sounds pretty simple. But how often are we caught taking the gospel for granted, storing it up in our head and not putting it down in our hearts where it belongs? It's because we don't dwell on it as much as we ought. And there's a key distinction between knowing something and giving that same something daily attention in the form of remembrance. The amount of times you'll find the call to remember the works of the Lord are staggering in Scripture. It's absolutely everywhere, and it's for good reason. All of Israel's folly and turmoil stems from not properly remembering the works of God. In fact, this is one of the most common calls that Moses gives to the people of Israel in his ministry. And in that, we can see the distinction between having a simple knowledge of something and remembering it well. Israel was more than aware of God. The food they ate, the paths they took as a tribe, the miracles they witnessed, if you were a part of the tribe of Israel, in Moses' day especially, you could not deny the presence of God. And yet time and time again, they transgressed against God. And Why is that? Their transgressions are an immediate result of not remembering the grace of God towards them. Stubborn and scared, they reject the teachings of God in the name of worry, hunger, all matter of things earthly. Had they remembered the many times that God had delivered them from their worry, hunger, etc., truly, 
in their hearts, the endless cycle of transgression would stop. And the importance of this is stated so abundantly in the Old Testament. Moses recounts the entire history of Israel's deliverance from the Egyptians multiple times in his ministry. The laws themselves have remembrance baked into them with all their various offerings and tithes. All of it points to remembrance. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need however many slaughtered bulls for whatever occasion, calves, fruit, grain offerings to be satisfied. These serve the purpose of giving God the reverence he is due. Acknowledging that the providence of Israel does not come from the storing up of many goods or how much money that you have, but rather that God provides and having much means little. But having God means everything. And so this morning, if you want to know God's forgiveness, if you want to live in it, you need to remember it daily. You need to remember where you were before God's forgiveness. You need to remember where you are because of God's forgiveness. And you need to think about where you're going because of God's forgiveness. And that's what David is doing in our text this morning. I'm sure if Moses was around in the time of King David and he had a chance to read this psalm, he would have breathed a sigh of relief to see remembrance practiced as well as it is in this text. And so this leads naturally into the second application statement I made. If you want to live in God's forgiveness, you need to remember it, yes, but two, you need to act in response to it. And realistically, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually a good check for ourselves to gauge the quality of how we remember God in the first place. If the news of the gospel isn't causing you to respond in action, you don't understand it or you are forgetting about it. And we see this in our text. David, confronted by his own meditation on the workings of God in his life and the lives of others, leads him to action. Someone who dwells on God's forgiveness takes on the character of God himself. Think about it. Your debt and sin outside of God's grace is insurmountable. In your natural state, you're condemned. You're left in the dark without a shred of hope that you'll ever be able to account for what you've done. And to add to that despair, the one who swings the gaffel in the courtroom is God. And there's no middle ground, there's no need for a jury, no deliberation, no crown attorney to try and lessen the sentence. And the punishment is swift, it's harsh, and it's eternal. And for no reason other than his love for you, someone else takes up that punishment for you. And it's not just some other human, a friend, a spouse. It's the very son of the judge. And all of a sudden, when you are faced with total condemnation, your debt is paid. And as naturally as you were condemned in your sin, in Christ, you're saved. If this is true, and if we know this in our hearts, and we bind it to our hearts daily in the form of remembrance, how can it lead to apathy and inaction? The answer is, it can't. One who's forgiven much, forgives much. I think that's important enough to repeat. One who is forgiven much, 
forgives much. I don't know about you, but Matthew 18 comes to mind. The parable of the unforgiving servant. And how often in our lives do we find ourselves in the role of the unforgiving servant? Your debt that you've been forgiven is much, and yet you turn around and you struggle with forgiving those who have inflicted or transgressed against you. And if you truly know the forgiveness of God, you begin to act in line with the grace that you've been given. Suddenly the transgression the world makes against you, they begin to roll off your back. You're too enamored by the forgiveness you received in Christ and you can't help but forgive those around you. Your whole attitude towards the world changes and how you act and who you are is conformed to the forgiveness of God. In other words, if you want to live in God's forgiveness, you need to act in response to it, and this isn't something that you force. It's not a checklist item. It's not something that comes from any kind of will. It comes as a natural response to understanding the debt that you've been forgiven, and this is the work of the Spirit in those who know God's forgiveness. So much in the same vein as action, our third statement this morning is this. If you want to live in God's forgiveness, you must rejoice in it. One could maybe look at this as a sub-statement of the last statement I just made. Praise and, and worship is an action. But the reality is that joy, praise, and love for God in light of his forgiveness ought to be the DNA of our remembrance and our action. They all intertwine with each other. If you're a Christian who's weary and you're tired and you're caught in the trap of a devotional life and a church life being a checklist of obligations, you need to remember the debt that you've been pardoned in Christ. And the closer that you hold that in your heart, the things you do are no longer born from guilt or obligation, but rather of joy that comes from acting in response to the grace that you've been given. What is action if it's backed, or if it isn't backed, by a praise-filled, joyful heart? It's salvation by works, which is a fallacy, and over time it will erode your faith, tricking ourselves into thinking joy will be granted to us because of what we do, where joy is supposed to be the motivation for our action in the first place. And we see this in our text. David starts and ends this psalm with praise. Praise and joyfulness precede and proceed our text this morning because it should be our motivation and it should be our response. If you want a truly joyful life, a life full of praise, I'll tell you right now, it's not going to come from anything that you can think of earthly that you could list. It's not going to come from winning the lottery. It's not going to come from simple things and life circumstances just improving for you. It's not going to come from more well-behaved children or a better marriage and not from any kind of possession you don't have but you really want. A life of joy comes from knowing God's forgiveness and knowing it well. God's forgiveness is final. It won't change like all of the things we often gauge the quality of our lives by. And if you're a Christian, this morning my call to you, David's call to you, Moses' call to you and ultimately God's call to you 
is to remember the forgiveness and the grace that you've received from the Lord our God. Live in it. Rejoice in it and act because of it. This is doctrine for life, but this doctrine is also life itself. And for those of you this morning who don't know this forgiveness, consider Jesus Christ. Your debt is great, your judgment dire, but you're not without a savior. He stands before the righteous judge and takes your judgment for no reason other than grace and love for you. Joy and peace rooted in love is waiting in the forgiveness of your sins. So know the bottomless pit of your sin, but know the immeasurability of God's ability to pardon it and know a life lived through forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, forgive us for more times often than not, we do not hold it in our hearts as we ought to, as you've commanded us to in your word. And Lord, that leads us to trip and stumble in our walks. Lord, we want to be joy-filled. We want to live a life worthy of your calling to us. And so, Lord, we need to confront ourselves about your forgiveness. We need to dwell on it. We need to rejoice in it. We need to be like David who starts off thinking inwardly about this and then goes out and calls all manner of people to you. And so, Lord, would you work mightily by your spirit in us this morning to do this? Lord, we thank you for today, and would you bless the rest of our time this morning in worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.